0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Banyasco, I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Robert Kent is the Texas State Director for the Trust for Public Land, where he leads a team of colleagues and volunteers working to make the health, climate, equity, and community benefits of parks and nature accessible to all. Born and raised in Dallas, Robert is passionate about building green, resilient cities in the Lone Star State. Since joining TPL in 2014, Robert has led their work to develop networks of parks and trails across southern Dallas, develop an open space plan for the city of Fort Worth, and acquire hundreds of acres of land for new parks throughout Texas, to name a few things. You'll hear about Robert's formative time at Baylor University in my hometown of Waco, Texas, his international studies in Scotland, his Appalachian Trail through hike, and all about the TPL's work in Texas communities. From dusting off historic plans for urban greenways and parks to the $2 billion idea for a Texas land and water conservation fund. Having grown up in Texas myself and spent some time in these communities, this conversation was particularly inspiring to me. Some of the same issues we're talking about are what led me to pursue a career in landscape architecture in the first place. I believe wholeheartedly that the work that Robert and his colleagues are doing will measurably improve the lives of Texans by providing access to much-needed outdoor spaces. Head to tpl.org to find out more and to see some of the projects that we referenced. Thanks for tuning in. Here's episode 43. Cool. I've got Robert Kent on Zoom, Texas State Director at the Trust for Public Land. What's going on, Robert? Hey, Dylan. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for joining. I like your hat.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I'm wearing my
0: Trust for Public
1: Land hat with our new logo, um, which uh, we've gotten a lot of compliments for this since we rolled it out about a year ago. The previous logo was a green box that a lot of people confused for the HR block logo. Right, right. I'm just thinking we could do their taxes um, and uh, had to disabuse them of that notion. Yeah. Um, but the new logo, I think, looks great and really uh, you know, articulates our vision of parks and green spaces for everyone. Also looks like a shovel. Um, so you can uh-huh. imagine uh,
0: you're out there with a shovel helping to make these parks happen. It's slick. I like it. Well, we got connected by, uh, by a fellow who listened to a few episodes and thought that, that you'd be a great fit for the show. So first of all, thanks, Ryan, for setting us up. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, in, in looking into some of your work there in Texas, I realized we've got a lot in common. I'm a, I'm a Waco guy myself. I grew up in central Texas and spent most of my life there until moving to Tennessee and, and now Colorado. But excited about some of the work you're doing there, man. It's much needed.
1: I think uh, you may have seen uh, into in the background that I'm a Baylor grad. I did. So I uh, spent four years in that magical city known as Waco, Texas, and uh, my whole family went to Baylor, basically. So we're kind of steeped in um, Waco and Baylor Bears. My grandparents lived there for a little while, too. Um, so know the area well.
0: Cool. Nice. I'm a trader. I, I ended up going over to Fort Worth. To, so I'm a horned frog. Oh, uh, okay. I see that you're doing some important work up in Fort Worth as well, which I want to get into. But yeah, yeah, tell the folks about kind of what your background is and how you got into this work with the the Trust for Public Land.
1: Yeah, well, um, Trust for Public Land is a national not-for-profit organization, and our vision is to connect everyone to the outdoors. Um, You know, we know that when people have close to home access to parks, nature, trails, green spaces... Uh, they're happier, they're healthier, they're more connected to each other, um, and it's good for the planet, too. Um, and so we're working to make that a reality for everyone in America. Um, a lot of that work in cities crystallizes around this idea of the 10-minute walk, so we want everyone who lives in a city to have a park or trail within a 10-minute walk of home. And right now, about 100 million people across the country do not have a park or trail within walking distance of where they live, including 28 million children. Um yeah. And, uh, you know, those are some staggering figures there, particularly we consider the health implications of um, being outside. And, um, you know, we feel a great sense of urgency that we've got to make this um, reality of having everyone being able to get outside uh, come to pass as soon as possible.
0: It's a tall order, man. And some of these places where urban planning throughout the 20th century really didn't leave a lot of room for open space and you've got this this sort of development that's dominated by the automobile,
1: Yeah,
0: the the walking and biking aspect of it was really an afterthought. And um, I, I think this is a, a really difficult task, but a super, super important one, like you said, for people's physical and mental health. I would say not even an afterthought. It wasn't even an afterthought. Right. Um, it
1: was intentionally designed in a way that uh, sidelined walking as a uh, antiquated, outdated way of moving around um the city. You know, I think that humanity, uh, certainly in America, we put a great amount of faith in technological progress. Um and if you think about how cities were designed a hundred years ago and how they're designed today, I mean, radically different because of the automobile. Yeah. and we take it for granted, having grown up with the automobile around us is like a fish in water. You don't know what water is. You don't know any other way of being. Um, but when you think about how cities used to be designed, when the primary mode of transportation was walking, um, maybe riding a horse, um, maybe uh, riding a streetcar. Uh, you know, the streetcar had a huge boom uh, in the first half of the 20th century. But by you know 1940, post-World War II, all of a sudden the automobile is ubiquitous. And we completely and radically, I and mean radically redesign how cities function. Yeah. Um, to put the automobile as the supreme and only important metric for how they're designed. You know, it drives everything about how the urban fabric looks. To, you know, number of parking spaces. You know, uh, gas stations. You know, why we have huge arterial roads that are basically highways running through neighborhoods. Um, and it's only been in the last, you know, 30 years uh, that uh, we've seen this shift that's saying, hmm, maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe this wasn't such a great idea after all. Uh, but of course, the problem is like the way that most of the cities have built now post World War II, with this huge sprawl, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You, You know, it's hard to undo these urban planning decisions because it ties down to real estate And how land is laid out, you know, where the roads are, very difficult to undo that. So we're kind of stuck with this legacy now, a multi-generational legacy that we're going to have to figure out how to address if we want to um, try to shift our, uh, not only our development patterns, but also how we live as humans um, away from just constantly being in the automobile
0: so you're relegated now to piecing together small parcels of undeveloped land or, or trying to retrofit these already developed areas to to include open space now. I think it's a it's an interesting puzzle, and, and I want to get yeah. into some of your examples here in a bit. Did, did you study this stuff at Baylor? Uh, I didn't. Um, I uh,
1: went to school, you know, not sure what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, there's another – Version of my life in the multiverse, I guess, where I'm a musician and, uh, me too. You know, Maybe I, we're in the same band. <laughs> yeah. I had applied to, uh, you know, go to music school. Um, and I had applied to Baylor, sort of a backup, and just didn't know what I wanted to do really. And, um, ended up at Baylor. Um, and I took a, uh, course my freshman year on environmental science and, um, it was taught by a really fabulous professor, Dr. Larry Lair. Shout out to him. if He's a, a fan of the pod. And, um, you know, it changed my whole thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I uh, saw the size of the challenge that we're facing as a society and as a human race with regards to environmental issues. Um and really saw that there was a role for me to have my life intersect with that and hopefully help make a difference um so i changed my major um in my freshman year and went you know full bore into uh environmental science and environmental studies and then i took another transformative class on economic development focusing on international economic development and um that you know sparked another interest of mine of how could I combine these two things together? So um, I ended up sort of having a, a, it wasn't a double major, cause I was in a program called University Scholars, where you get to choose your own major and choose your own courses. But I focused all of my studies on um, environmental uh, studies and economic development. you know? And uh, when I left Baylor in 2009, my plan was I wanna go, you know, work for USAID, or world bank you know go to central america um and talk about uh you know and, and work on issues of sustainable economic development you know how could we deploy small-scale solar um to electrify rural villages um you know i went on to get my master's degree in economic development at the university of glasgow in scotland where oh, i cool. further studied these issues um but uh When I came back to the States in 2011, much like today, we were in one of those seemingly endless budget crises that racks Congress. And at that point, uh, Congress had made this devil's bargain where um, they would raise the debt limit in exchange for drastically cutting government spending on a number of issues, including international development, international aid. So um, I kind of couch surfed around DC for about six weeks, You know, slept on my cousin's couch, (laughs) literally, and uh, took a lot of informational meetings and interviews with agencies, World Bank and, you know, um, other groups that are focusing on international development. And they all said, we'd love to hire you, but we're not hiring anybody. In fact, we're letting people go right now because of these budget cuts. Um, So, uh, you know, came back to Texas with my tail between my legs, really moved back to my parents' house and wasn't sure what was next, but had to recalibrate.
0: So what was Scotland like? How long were you there?
1: I was in Scotland for um, a year, Uh, lived in Glasgow, um, which is on uh, the Western uh, side of the country. Um, I uh, moved over there with a suitcase and, um, uh, you know, a a place at school and not much else. Um, I was fortunate to have a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation. Um, And that's what allowed me to have that experience. But I just fell in love with the country and with the people, um, with uh, the city of Glasgow. Uh, You know, Glasgow's had an interesting reputation, but by 2010, 2011, when I was there, it was um, going through a real renaissance um, and a lot of excitement and momentum um, around what that city could be and uh, the development there. Uh, so I, I just had a great, great experience.
0: That's awesome. I know a few people that have gone for masters there. I guess they, do they accept a lot of international students?
1: They do. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of international students to come through. Um, they have a couple of one-year master's programs, um, okay. which I think is, uh, certainly enticing to international audiences as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and I was you know, fortunate to be a part of a group of people from all over the world. So, uh, I think a lot of times, you know, when you do a study abroad, it can be really tempting and easy to kind of fall in with the other Americans and uh, other Canadians. Um, and I really made an intentional effort to say, I want to get outside that group and certainly had friends who were from North America, but this group that I was with, you know, we were with people from Brazil and from Japan, uh, from Africa, from Bangladesh, uh, from other countries in Europe. And, um, it was the most diverse and most um, international group of friends I've ever been a part of. Um, you know, we still keep up with each other, and uh, I really cherish that experience as uh, helping to open your mind, open my mind about um, you know what it's like to live in the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic experience, man. I I hope that my kid gets to do something like that. I I went backpacked for about six weeks after college, but it was it was one of my favorite times of my life. I wish it could have gone on longer, but similarly to you, I came back to Texas with no job and stayed at mom and dad's for a few months to try to figure things out. How did you get out of that when you were, when you were back at mom and dad's house? Well, um, I had, uh, the fortune of, um,
1: getting to meet someone who was, uh, in the environmental space in Dallas, who, uh, was focused on air quality issues of all things. And, I came to her and said, uh, you know, I'm here in town. Uh, I didn't think I was going to be in town for long. You know, I think I said to her, I I fully expect I will be in D.C. within six months. Um, But, you know, if I can volunteer for you for a few months, you know, just to keep the resume fresh, I'd be happy to do that. And she said, well, uh, I don't really have a need, but, you know, there's this other organization that um, is hiring an environmental program director. Uh, You ought to go talk with them. So um, I went and took a, a meeting with this other company called the North Texas Commission, and um, you know ended up getting offered a job pretty much right away. And uh, ironically, at the same time, I had finally received an offer for employment in DC, not in international development, but with a research company writing research reports. And um, I kind of looked at the two offers side by side. And when I really compared the cost of living of how much my dollar be worth in Dallas versus in D.C. It was a pretty easy decision, right? Uh, yeah, to, to take the job in Dallas. And uh, even when I took that job, though, I really thought, okay, I'll do this for like a year. I, I literally thought to myself, what is the shortest amount of time I can work this position before it's polite for me to leave? But um, very quickly, I mean, within six weeks of being there, I totally shifted my mindset and realized that Dallas was actually exactly where I wanted to be. Um, you know, the city, maybe it was just like being an adult and no longer being a, a, a child and having a new exposure to different parts of Dallas. But there was a lot of exciting things happening in Dallas around that time. Um, one of the big ones was the opening of Clive Warren Park, mm-hmm. uh, which is this really amazing park built on top of a freeway. So there's a freeway that is um, built through a canyon that divides the two parts of our central business district, the downtown and uptown area. And um, some visionary leaders for the city said, let's build a deck on top of that freeway and put a park on top of that. And so that opened in 2011. And um, I remember going to the grand opening and just being like, wow, this is amazing. And it inspired me to think about you know, what other ways could Dallas be different and looking around and finding there were a lot of other uh, innovative um, and exciting dynamic leaders who were trying to change that conversation for Dallas. So, uh, you know, I kind of realized this is a great spot to be in
0: and it's a chance to help
1: shape things um, here in my own backyard.
0: 2011. I remember that park opening. And when I went and studied landscape architecture in Tennessee, that was one of the projects that kept coming up as this fantastic example of urban infill development on structure park as you said like fascinating engineering feat and uh just a really really cool project that since has spawned some some other similar projects around the country yeah. um uh, that's a that's a great example so you know north texas i think is so apt for the kind of work you're doing it's a big flat expanse of prairie that I think folks don't necessarily understand the ecological value of those spaces. And it's subject to this insane sprawl. If you look at a time-lapse of that part of the country, Fort Worth and Dallas are just slowly joining into one massive metroplex. We're losing, I think I was reading some stats, losing about, a quarter million acres of land to development each year in Texas. I mean, wow. Mostly agricultural, right?
1: Yeah, I know it's wild. Um, So I was looking at the recent census. um, Statistics about fastest growing counting counties. And uh, I believe that five of the top 10 are in Texas. And three of those five are in North Texas, DFW Hoffman, Rockwall, and Parker County. So if you look at the area, you've got Dallas County and Tarrant County, and then adjacent to those are Rockwall, Parker, and Coffman. Wow. Um, and uh, it's absolutely true that land is disappearing by the minute. Um, my, uh, my grandparents, um, before they passed, owned a ranch in Rockwall, um, which used to be this sleepy little town, smallest county in Texas, um, just outside of Dallas. And, you know, we've been going out there for 50, 60 years, I think is when they bought that property in the sixties. Um, and it's been amazing watching how uh, development is just gobbling up everything around it. And so now their property is just sort of the final holdout. Um, you know, it's all development around it on all sides. Wow. And uh, we still say go into the country, but it's not the country anymore. Um, and uh, that's playing out all across DFW. Um, it's a race to the red river right now as well. So when you are driving South from Oklahoma into Texas, you cross the red river. And I did this trip just a couple weeks ago. Um, actually I was coming back from a canoeing, uh, paddling trip on the Buffalo river in Arkansas. And as we're coming down, um, us 75 and you cross the red river, I mean, almost within a minute, you can see the first rooftop and it's very prominent because it's a big a big McMansion house, yeah. you know, you see that rooftop popping up there on the edge of the prairie. And it's like, that's it. That's the wall. And, you know, next year it'll be another several hundred yards out and hundred yards out and you keep growing and growing. And I mean, it seems to me like I used to think the red river was a stopping point. I'm not sure that it will be. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're just going to keep expanding unless we can find a way to um, change that
0: development ethic. So lots of space, right? An economically friendly state, no state income tax, uh, business friendly. You've got, as you said, sort of a development ethic of, well, let's just keep going north, east, south, and west. There's more space. Uh, I watched it happen all along the the highway, the I-35 north-south corridor, growing Mm -hmm. up, visiting Dallas, visiting Austin, and now... One by one, all those little towns just kind of are subject to strip mall development. How do you change something like that, the way that people begin to develop these these highway towns?
1: It's hard. How do you fight gravity? Yeah, you know. Um, I think that so much of this, again, it's that fish and water concept that we are now two, three generations into a car-first development pattern. And so you and I as millennials don't know any different. And it's hard for us to even imagine what that would look like, you know, going back to traveling in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. That's why European cities are so charming to us, because I think that when you visit one of these European cities, it taps into something deep and primordial in our brain about, oh, it feels good to walk. Yeah. And it feels good to be around other people. Step outside your house and see there are other people on the street.
0: And the architecture has ornamentation and cultural character vernacular. Yes. It's not cheap, as cheap as possible with with no character, no no regional value, um, yeah. which we experience in a lot of parts of the U.S.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think to change that, uh, I don't know, there's a couple ways to think about it. Um, I often think about maybe one of the best ways, best things you can do to help conserve – natural lands, working lands, in rural areas is to make your core cities as livable and as um, uh, enticing as possible. So that's everything from, you know, the physical infrastructure of density, of parks and green space, but also um, other elements like schools. You know, one of the biggest drivers of outward migration of families is schools. Um, If your urban core school district is not perceived to be a uh, quality choice for your children, then, I mean, that is um, a very understandable and laudable human instinct, I think, to say, well, I need to go to the place where my children will have the very best chance of success. And if that's putting them in the public school in my urban core, then absolutely. I'm going to move to, Richardson, Plano, Allen, Parker, you know, wherever. Um, and uh, so it's it's interesting to think that there's actually a connection between sort of your school board trustee race and conserving natural land that's 100 miles outside the urban core. Yeah. Because if Dallas ISD schools are not a place where I'd be comfortable sending my two children to, you know, then we've got to make some hard choices as well. And we'd be contributing to that outward sprawl.
0: That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that connection.
1: Yeah, I think that their urban development and rural conservation are two sides of the same coin because mm-hmm. all of these people got to go somewhere. And if we cannot make living in the city as enticing as possible, then, of course, people will make the choice to say, I'm going to go to that new shiny suburb where the houses are new, the schools are new, the roads are new. Everything Absolutely. is, you
0: know. Yeah, you're offering them a better alternative. Why? Who wouldn't yeah. take that? So yeah. as a not for profit organization, how does the Trust for Public Land work on these issues? How do you operate?
1: Yeah. Um, so Trust for Public Land, we are kind of tackling it from all sides, uh, which is what makes this job so exciting. Um, you know, we got our start really as a real estate organization. And um in the interview with uh my former colleague, you know, he talked about that a lot. Um the folks who um founded this organization were uh A lot of lawyers um, real estate professionals you know uh, people who know how to work a land deal um, and a focus on let's go find those most important natural places and purchase them and transfer ownership over to a public agency so that they can be conserved in perpetuity for the benefit of people forever Um, and so that can take the form of you know buying the last privately held inholding in the Zion National Park you know where basically the park is developed around what was once a privately held piece of land and then working with that landowner say we're going to buy that and then convey that to the park system okay. um or uh you know in a city like um, Austin uh, we can work on um, purchasing open spaces uh, and conveying those to the city park department um so Barton Creek Greenbelt yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with that. In the nineties, that was the largest privately owned ranch in yeah. city limits. Um really? it was uh the I believe it's called the Gaines Ranch. And um it is the creek, Barton Creek that feeds into Barton Springs. Um and in the nineties, the family that owned it uh, you know, was looking for what to do with this property that, you know, you're not going to operate a ranch in the middle of the city in downtown Austin. Um, and so a developer was on the cusp of purchasing that ranch and they were going to turn it into houses and apartments and shops and retail and all those things that we need, all those very important things that we need. Um, however, uh, the community around there thought, you know, perhaps there's another way and um, worked with the Trust for Public Land. And my predecessors in this company uh, negotiated the purchase of that ranch and um, then conveyed that thousand acre property to Austin Parks Department. And now it is the Barton Creek Greenbelt, one of the most cherished natural areas in Austin and frankly, all of Texas. And uh, that was because we had some very smart uh, real estate guys who um were um wanting to uh uh use that power that skill set to uh, protect these important natural areas um in recent years we have really leaned in on our city's strategy and thinking about how we can apply these same skill sets within cities um, and new skill sets as well so. In addition to all of this real estate work um, we also have a whole body of work that focuses on park design and development Um, and um, you know we have uh, teams that um, specialize in working with communities and working with city park departments county park departments uh, to understand what are community priorities for their green spaces coming up with designs that match those community priorities and then getting those things funded and built. Uh, and that's been a lot of our work in Dallas since I've joined Trust Republic Land um, in 2014.
0: Wow. And you were part of opening up that office, right? Or or it's a more I was, recent addition.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I was hired in 2014 to reopen the Dallas office. Uh, we've got, a legacy of work across Texas that stretches back to the late 70s. Um, We've helped purchase over 43,000 acres of land statewide, and um, that includes about 1800 acres here in the DFW area. But um, by 2014, you know, our presence in Texas had waned and we had um, one person, our Texas State Director, who is in Austin um, doing some great work in Austin, Uh, and we had a donor who um, really wanted to reopen and reestablish our North Texas presence as well. So uh, I was hired um, to do that job. And, um, you know, I have been with this, the North Texas commission, like I mentioned earlier for three years, and was really enjoying what I was doing there. Um, but uh, by chance, got to meet some of my colleagues here at Trust Republic Land and um, You know, it's so funny. We um, had coffee and they said, oh, yeah, we're looking at hiring um, this position. And, you know, I kind of scratched my head and thought, well, that's interesting. You know, but I don't know if I'm like a parks guy. Uh, I like parks and I love nature, you know, through hike the Appalachian Trail, did a coast to coast hike across Scotland. You know, Eagle Scout, the whole works, but is this really where I want my career to go? Um, so at first I didn't apply and, uh, <laughs> finally, uh, the person ended up being my boss, sent me a letter and was like, look, are you going to email and said, look, are you going to apply for this job or not? Uh, and I was like, okay, fine. I'll throw my name in the hat. And, um, you know, three months later,
0: uh, ended up starting with trust Republic land and, um, haven't looked back. Good for you. Almost 10 years now. Yeah. You thru-hiked the Appalachian Trail, huh? How long did that take you? Uh, Six months. Wow, that's pretty standard, right?
1: Uh, Yes, Um, I should say five and a half months, so a little above average. (laughs) Um, So while I was at Baylor, um, for one summer, I worked as research assistant for uh, one of my environmental studies professors, uh, Dr. Bratton, who was researching a book about the Appalachian Trail. And... I ended up spending six weeks with her uh, on the AT, and uh, my job was to be the survey administrator. And so I posted up at road crossings where parking lots were, and I had a little um, goodie bag that had things like candy bars and shoelaces and um, other little trinkets that through hikers love to have. (laughs) And uh, I would bribe through hikers to stop for, you know, 20 minutes and take our survey in exchange for a candy bar or a shoelaces or whatever. That's brilliant. Um, It's ended up meeting a lot of thru-hikers that way. And the questions, you know, were, why are you doing this? What motivates you? She was really trying to study, uh, you know, the connections between religious pilgrimages and hiking on the AT and understanding Mm -hmm. thru-hikers have, um, you know, some type of spiritual motivation for why they're doing this. Um. But uh, I met, you know, a lot of amazing people. AT thru-hikers are, um, you know, a unique bunch to say the least. You've got to be a little bit crazy uh, to want to spend six months and do that to your body of hiking 2,000 miles. Right. But um, I came back from the trip and said, i got to do this. So I uh, decided that I was going to find a way to make it happen. And, you know, in 2009, May 2009, when I graduated, you know, having just watched the economy crumble around me, around all of us in 2008 uh, and said, you know, I think six months off to hike the AT right now is not a bad idea, actually. And uh, so I graduated in May and July. I was starting up in Maine,
0: heading south. Wow. What were your motivations compared to the people that you surveyed?
1: Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think part of it was adventure. Um I grew up on a steady diet of J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, And so, you know, a central part of all of his books are people walking vast distances on a mission. Yeah. And so um, I think that that certainly figured into some of my interests of just going on a long journey. Um, I uh, was on, I wouldn't say a pilgrimage per se, but I think um, as a lot of, People who are in that transitional phase uh, from high school, college, and young adulthood, trying to understand um, themselves and their place in the world. And uh, completing a journey like that felt very important um, yeah. as a part of that. Um, and, uh, you know, again, having left Baylor and there really was no other job prospects on the horizon, it seemed like this would be a great experience, a once in a lifetime experience, maybe. Um, I remember thinking a lot at the time about how, again, a 2,000 mile journey is significant, I think, across all of history. However, 100 years ago, certainly 200 years ago, a lot of people made journeys like that Hmm. and took their whole life with them. You know, moving west across America or moving from um, Europe to America and great migrations uh, and um, feeling like... uh, Looking at my ancestry, having no, having a lot of people in my family who would have one point made that journey, wanting to understand what that would feel like. Um, so it was a great privilege uh, to be able to do that, to have the time, to have the resources, to be able to take a journey like that. A lot of people don't have that type of privilege, and I'm, I'm aware of that, and um, really uh, try to express gratitude for that whenever I can.
0: That's an amazing experience. I, I played around with the idea of doing that. I was kind of lost after college. I was, I had chased my now wife out to, uh, Knoxville. I was bartending and, uh, I kind of thought I played around with with it for a while. Maybe I'll go hike the trail with my dog. And, um, I didn't end up doing, I, I went on some, some little forays down in the, the Southern part, like near the Nantahala, yeah. uh, national forest and in those areas and, uh, Cherokee national forest. My brother and I had a horrible, probably the worst night of sleep I've ever had in my life. We really underestimated our gear. This is a decade ago and uh, camped up there on the trail and just shivered all night. It was terrible. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if I was cut out for it then. I'm, I'm a better outdoorsman now. Well, I'll tell you, um,
1: I think that one of the things I learned about the trail is that uh, like anything in life, it's more than just what you're physically capable of. Um, I always tell people the first thousand miles is a physical challenge. Can I physically do this? And the second thousand miles is a mental challenge. Do I want to keep doing this? And finding that motivation to keep doing this. You know, because once you hit that halfway point, you can go home with your head held high. Cause you're not gonna know a single person back home who walked a thousand miles in three months. Yeah. And so we were the people i was hiking with we would joke you know how great it would be to get a rattlesnake bite that'd be an honorable discharge no i couldn't finish it i got a snake bite and i just can't you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. but um that rattlesnake never came to take me out of my misery and so i just kept going and uh what I, you know what's amazing is i look at the people that started with me on day one and go to finish with me on day 180 you know and uh the people who started on day one a lot of them had all the fanciest gear. You know, there was this one guy who was super ultra light, very, um, you know, looked down his nose at people who had older gear that weighed a lot. And, oh, you, you know, that that sleeping bag, that, that's got to weigh at least six ounces more than mine does. And I'm sleeping in a Mylar sheet that, you know, weighs just a sheet of a paper. And, uh, you know, I remember he had a stove that only burned on fuel that you gathered, So wood-burning stove. And this was all the rage. Uh, well, it turns out that July 2009 in Maine was the rainiest summer Maine had had in like two decades. He couldn't <laughs> light a fire. He couldn't get his food warm, and he he bailed out on day two. Whoa! Uh, I asked him, "What what happened? Why are you leaving?" And He said, "Ah, the wood, it's too wet. I can't I can't light my light my stove. I don't want to do this." Wow! You know, and then the guy that finished with me, uh, December 12th of 2009, his first night camping ever was on the trail ever he had his sleeping bag no joke was one of those like flannel roll-up ones that oh, you take yeah. on like you know your first cub scout camp out and uh his his nickname on the trail australian was lightweight which was a joke because his pack weighed like 50 <laughs> or 60 pounds he made it all the way and then he went on to go do the pacific crest trail a few years later you know so i think that all that is to say um it can be easy to look at someone and size them up and say you can or can't do this and you actually have no idea You know, you really don't know until you're out there testing your metal what's possible, what you're capable of. Mm. And for the folks that finish it, um, you know, you realize you're capable of anything you set your mind to. What was your trail name? Um, So my full name was Three Stove Tex, went by Tex. (laughs) It's kind of a, you know, de rigueur that if you're a a Texan on the trail, you're going to get called Tex. And I had a cowboy hat that I wore, but the Three Stove came because uh, like my – friend with the, all the latest gear. My stove did not work either. Um, the first one, uh, it was uh, it was nice, but I had the wrong fuel canister for it. And um, you know, the first hundred miles of the trail goes through a place called the Hundred Mile Wilderness, where um, there's really no way to get off the trail um, except for hiking back out. And uh, that wasn't going to be me. So on day two, you know, when my stove isn't working because I brought the wrong fuel canister. I bought a stove from someone else and um, now a stove too. And uh, then about six weeks in, once you really start counting your ounces and counting your grams, I um, upgraded or downgraded I'm not sure how you describe it into a, a homemade, uh, what's called like a, a cat food can stove where um, you take a tin of cat food, you empty it out and you take a hole punch and you punch holes around the rim and you fill it with rubbing alcohol and you light it. And that was my stove for the rest of the trip. Wow. And man, uh, man. the stove weighs nothing. Um, and if it breaks, you can always make a new one for about a buck. And it will runs on anything that burns. So uh, definitely had to buy Everclear a couple times because couldn't find, you know, the isopropyl alcohol and it worked just fine. Huh.
0: That's a good skill to know. Yeah, I use one yeah. of those fancy little white gas camp stoves. Yeah. So what would you say... I guess now in your work, what what did you take away from that experience or or you know, what do you think about now when you're doing this sort of community building work? Anything that really stuck with you from that Appalachian Trail through hike? Hmm.
1: It's an interesting question. Um you know, I think that it certainly influenced my interest in trails and interest in um nature corridors uh if you think about the appalachian trail as being this continuous two thousand mile long strip of green running down the mountains and you know most animal migrations are north south right following the seasons um and so you know i think that that is hugely important to think about creating this continuous corridor where there still are possibilities of true wildlife migrations following up and down that um uh certainly we haven't done anything of that scale in uh at least in my work in Dallas but um nonetheless looking for ways to find continuous large landscapes that are linear in some way. Um so uh here in Dallas right now we're working on a major project called the 5 Mile Creek Greenbelt.
0: Yeah, I wanted and, to ask uh, you about that.
1: Yeah. Uh 5 Mile Creek is uh, one of the tributaries that flows into the Trinity River in Dallas. Um, You know, you talked about Dallas and North Texas being flat plains, a lot of cotton fields, uh, what it was at one time, um, and before that, Blackland Prairie. Um, And uh, that is true, um, except for the area known as Oak Cliff um, in Dallas. And Oak Cliff is the northernmost edge of the Balcona's escarpment area. Uh-huh. which is a geological feature that runs from basically Laredo and the Rio Grande all the way up here to the Trinity River. And um, I wouldn't call it mountains. That'd be generous. Uh, it's more like lumpy places on the map. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, uh, you know, in Dallas, it is one of the few parts of Dallas where there are some proper hills, um, some proper elevation change. And uh, importantly, the creek system there looks a lot more like the Creek ways you would find in the Hill country outside of Austin, um, rather than the more kind of mud bottom creeks you find in East Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so five mile Creek is one of these Rocky creeks and the water is crystal clear. Um, it's amazing. You know, it's always flowing even in the worst drought. And uh, every time I see it, it is clear all the way to the bottom, um, which is unusual because you go five miles to the east on the other side of the Trinity river and it's all muddy water. Yeah. Um, So uh, we have been working with the city of Dallas to develop a network of parks and trails following Five Mile Creek um, and really trying to create a comprehensive. Conservation and recreation plan for the Creekway, Um, so not only protecting the important natural areas that still exist along the Creekway, but then creating opportunities for people to access it and recreate there. Um, so, uh, a big piece of that is a 16 mile trail that will connect across the entire Creekway. So you'll be able to run or bike or walk, um, along that trail from one end to the other, as well as a series of parks that we're developing along the Creek system. Um, some as small as a couple acres and others as big, um, as, uh, 80 acres. Um, and, uh, you know, those aren't huge acreages compared to what is, outside city limits but inside city limits to protect an 80 acre property uh, is almost unheard of yeah uh, particularly in a city like Dallas where we're so you know extraordinarily built out
0: yeah you look at just the real estate value of a parcel like that if you max it out on development it's it's a non-starter you know yeah. for for most of those type of places yep it's interesting you talked about the this being a, a rare area of topographic change in that region one of the reason one of the things that brought me out west i'm in colorado now is that the topography constrains development in a way where you know i bought a little condo in a place because i know that i'm looking at a mountain right right out my window i know that this city's not going to sprawl and yeah. my investment is safe and that's just not the case in so much of texas but you have these small areas like the escarpments or the canyon lands where they're kind of they're they're safe from that sort of sprawl. And so they're perfect for this type of thing. Your, your rail to trail projects or your greenbelt developments that can happen in those places. Like you talked about Barton Creek. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, thank goodness for those type of places that are left. So when you're talking about this sort of a project in my landscape architecture work, we rely so much on renderings and, and illustrative plans to get people excited about these type of projects. Is that where you start? You come up with a master vision for this sort of green belt and then go, okay, how do we get this done?
1: Yeah. So we, um, one of the things we, you know, talk about is that we're not the originators of this idea. Um, you go back in Dallas history books and there's been a series of urban plans that the city has um, uh, commissioned stretching back to the early 1900s with the Kessler plan, uh, which was one of them. And then in 1944, there was the Bartholomew plan for Dallas, um, named after the uh, planning company Bartholomew and Associates. And uh, that plan, um, I've got a copy of the map somewhere here, you know, it uh, shows the city and it shows a proposed network of green belts all across the city. So uh, they had envisioned basically every creek in the city would be turned into a green belt, mm. And, you know, this is a, not an uncommon um, planning aesthetic uh, for that time period. You know, it owes to the City Beautiful movement in many yeah. ways. And George Kessler himself, this was kind of his thing. Um, what I am struck by looking at that plan today is that if you draw a line in half across that plan using the Trinity River, which basically divides Dallas in half. Everything north of the Trinity River pretty much got built in one way or the other. Um, so, you know, on that map, you can clearly see the White Rock Creek Greenbelt. And that's the green belt I grew up next to as a kid. You know, when I was growing up in North Dallas, um every Saturday morning pretty much, my dad and I would hop on our bikes, we would ride down White Rock Creek Greenbelt down to White Rock Creek Lake and spend a wonderful Saturday morning. And that was you know, one of those cherished memories of my childhood that I hope to recreate with my children. Um, But uh, when you look at that plan, you go south of the Trinity River, and basically none of it got built. Um, And when you look at the history of Dallas as a Sunbelt city um, that was as segregated as any other city in the South, and you realize that south of the Trinity River is where most people of color lived, um, where most communities of color in Dallas were It's no surprise at all, actually, that none of that got built. Um, And so now Trust Republic Land, 80 years later, is picking up the torch. And we feel like it is our duty to make real this eight-decade-old promise that was never kept for the residents of Southern Dallas. Um, Particularly when you then layer on top of that the economic disparities, the health disparities, the equity disparities that still exist to this day. And you realize what a huge impact having a safe, close to home place to get outside and enjoy all the benefits that come from being outdoors, Um, health benefits, community benefits, economic benefits. You know, it's shocking that the city hasn't done this yet. And Trust for Public Land, you know, we are in a position uh, where we can make good on this commitment for the city. So, you know, we view our role as kind of this developer in a way you know, it's a lot of the same skill set. like we have to, um, whereas a developer is, you know, building a capital stack with investors to help buy land and build buildings and, and have people come occupy those spaces. You know, we have to find philanthropic investors. We have to build a capital stack that layers in public funding. Um, we have to still go buy a lot of land. Uh, we have to do a lot of design work with landscape architects and planners. We have to manage a construction process just like a developer would. But our end product is a park, is a trail, is a community asset, is a piece of urban infrastructure. Um, but uh, it takes all the same skill set going into it. Yeah. We just look it's... for a return on our investment that isn't dollars and cents. It's you know a health outcome. it's a community outcome. It's a, a neighborhood vitality outcome that we're tracking.
0: I love that story of picking up the the Kessler and Bartholomew plans. That's fascinating. I'm gonna to have to take a look at those after this. Uh, yeah, I'll send you a link to it. Oh, thanks. Before this, I was looking at a demographic map of Dallas because I've spent a little time there. My wife is from there, hmm. and um, what part of town are you from? Uh, sort of Highland Park area. Not yeah. probably not far from where you grew up. I, uh, I've i been on Turtle Creek and Katy Trail and those nice areas, and I go, oh, Dallas has got something going. And then you cross the tracks, you cross the river, and you go, yeah. wow, this is a yeah. totally different environment. It um, is. Yeah, and it, when I did some work on the Atlanta Beltline, I was doing, with, with in my landscape architecture work, an extension of the Atlanta Beltline Trail that was going through one of the most historically underserved parts of Atlanta. And there were a lot of fears that this was going to continue this radial gentrification that had kind of happened with other parts of the trail where they make it nice. They bring in all these new amenities. All of a sudden the residents are priced out. And, you know, how do you, how do you tackle that sort of concern when it comes to uh, community building in places like Dallas?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a tough question. Um, You know, one of the things I think about is that what we're talking about here is not gilding the lily. Right. It's not taking a part of town that already has a lot and adding even more. You know, we're talking about going to a part of Dallas that is so far below what the citywide threshold is and just bringing it up to that standard. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the data for that. So in Dallas right now, the percentage of the city that has a Parker trail within a 10 minute walk of home is 73%. So 73% of Dallas residents can walk outside their front door and get to a green space within a 10 minute walk of home. Okay. However, in the area around the five mile Creek green Belt, that percentage is 54%. So 19% lower, you know? Um, so our view is like, look, you know, we're not going to come drop like this, uh, um, gentrification bomb, uh, in an area that is, uh, already has all these elements, like we're here to bring this neighborhood infrastructure just up to the same level that everyone else in Dallas already enjoys. Um, and what we found in conversations with neighbors is that generally speaking, neighbors are pretty excited about having this type of amenity, um, you know, because they look around at other parts of Dallas that do have a great trail nearby. That do have a great park nearby, and they wonder why don't we have that?
0: Yeah, and just to clarify, I don't think that gentrification concerns are um, a reason to to stop doing what you're doing. Sure, you know, I, I I fully believe in the value of of what you're doing. I just think that's a it's a tough thing to tackle when you go. Well, we want to make improvements, but then we want the, we want these for the people who are already here. We don't want to displace anyone. So, yeah. Um, it can be tricky, but I think you're going about it the right way.
1: Yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, there's there's a lot of policies that um are getting kicked around, which I think are really interesting. Um some of them are, you know, policies around uh limiting development rights uh of certain properties, which is a way to tackle it. Uh I think that where I sit, it's best to Rely on and always go back to the foundation of what are your local residents, your local neighbors, the people who are actually impacted by this want to see happen there. Um, And uh, that means, you know, uh, here in Dallas just recently, a neighborhood that is um, really experiencing a lot of uh, gentrification um, voted to put in place um, a policy that will limit uh, the development that can happen in that neighborhood uh, that basically says uh, if you're going to tear down a home, you can't build a much bigger one in its place.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and uh, I think that some private property rights folks look at that and say, you're impinging upon a private property owner's right to realize the maximum value from this asset that they own. Um, and my response to that is that may be true, but if this is what the neighborhood wanted, if this is what they voted for on in a democratic process, you know, I mean, you kind of have to follow the will of the neighborhood there. And
0: um, that may be uh, finding solutions like that are maybe the way to go for us out here. It's limiting short-term rentals in a lot of Mm -hmm. these mountain communities that are really making they're you know, driving up the price, the price of these real estate assets and kind of destroying community fabric a little bit,
1: um,
0: to a degree. That's, that's a complicated issue, but a lot of communities out here are voting to limit or do away with Airbnb and VRBO. And yeah, so, um, That's a little unrelated. Uh, Tell me about the Texas Land and Water Conservation Fund. I just read about this like this morning, so I know nothing about it.
1: Yeah, um, it's a it's a pretty remarkable concept.
0: Um, So
1: Texas is one of like 10 states that does not have a permanent dedicated source of funding for conservation. Um, You know, Texas is also uh, 95 percent privately owned. Um, so, uh, that makes us a little different compared to other states that are Western. Uh, Texas really isn't South. It's not East, it's not West. It's its own thing, but yeah. nonetheless, you know, BLM does not have a huge presence in Texas uh, and neither does the U S forest service or, or any other, um, uh, national agency. So, uh, the Texas land and water conservation fund is, is an attempt to help create, uh, a permanent, dedicated source of funding to do this vitally important conservation work, um, but to do it with a real Texas centric perspective. Um, so uh, the concept is to capitalize this fund with um, an amount of money. Uh, we initially have been asking for $2 billion. We'll see if we get that. Um, but uh, it coming the from. Uh, there's a couple of ways it could happen. The way that we, had hoped it would happen would be through the current existing budget surplus in Texas. Um, right now, Texas has got this huge surplus, I think the biggest ever. And so, um, that'd be one way. The rainy day fund is another source of funding that could come from where in Texas, uh, we've got a savings account, uh, that the state manages that is used for when there's, um, you know, a budget crisis. And, uh, that fund again is huge right now because of all the sales tax revenues over the last couple of years. So, um, the sun would be capitalized, and then it would issue competitive grants every year that would be used to fund local parks, state parks, and conservation statewide. Um, As uh, you may recall from your time in Texas, you know, the legislature is not known to be a bill passing machine. It's really a bill killing machine. Um, And uh, there's a lot of uh, momentum right now around the need for funding conservation in Texas. There's a couple other proposals that are working their way through the ledge as well. So we're going to see kind of how things shake out over the next four weeks. We're kind of in crunch time right now. But um, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, actually, that once the legislature wraps up its session in June, there's going to be some landmark funding for conservation in the state. And whether it's our our fund or whether it's the Texas Park Centennial Fund or something else,
0: you know, it's going to be, at the end of the day, a win for conservation in Texas. First of all, I've never heard of a government having a budget surplus, so that's yeah, it's kind of <laughs> wild. That alone is exciting. I I know there's a ton of people moving to Texas, and and I'm sure that's most of the reason. But when wow. you limit government as much as we've done in Texas, you know it doesn't take a lot. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's great. Other states should be paying attention. So w- would that be an endowed fund that would then sit and grow money and and be used for these sort of acquisitions, like? How would that once you get yeah. the the capital, how does that work? Our
1: initial our initial concept was just that
0: that it would be an endowed
1: managed fund, and we would use the interest earnings off of it to fund these grants. So at two billion dollars, um then assuming five percent interest a year, you know you're looking at a hundred million dollars a year that could be granted out. Um, I think that uh, at this point, the conversation is shifting more towards a spin down. So one shot initial capitalization, spend that money down and then replenish at a later date. Hmm. Um, And uh, you know, it's kind of like, do you want to be like the smartest kid in the room or like the best looking kid in the room? You know, I think that ours was maybe the smartest, um, but not necessarily the best looking. It's kind of complicated. You're like on endowment and who's going to manage it. And what about the market and interest rates and, you know, can't we just like spend that money? Um, so I, I kind of think we'll end up following the, you know, the KISS principle keep it simple, stupid, yeah. uh, and follow the spend down route, which again, at the end of the day, look, any money for conservation is a win. And, you know, at the levels that are being kicked around in the hundreds of millions
0: and up to the billions, that's going to be huge. Wow. Well, good luck with that. I hope that's, I hope that comes to fruition. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. We, we talked about a, a decent range of your, purview here in in Texas. I guess I have a few other project examples. I guess which ones are you most excited about, or, or do you want people to know about uh, the things that you've worked on?
1: Yeah. Um. Well, you know, our work in tech or our work in Dallas right now is really where a lot of our focus is. Uh, this Five Mile Creek Greenbelt project. Um. I think it's going to have a transformational impact um, on our city. Um. I think that uh, this work that is happening in the legislature, if and when it comes to pass, that is going to create a new source of funding to do this work all across the state, which is huge. You know, park departments are constantly strapped for cash. Um, You know, in Dallas, the needs inventory is like two and a half billion dollars. So people go around, they look at their parks, and they're like, oh man, these parks are so crummy, and you know, they can't pick up the trash, and uh, you know, we should, it, it leads people to say they shouldn't invest in parks, but I think that from the park department's perspective in many cities they are um operating from such a scarcity mindset uh you know i think about one of our suburbs here in dallas where a couple of years ago i met with the park department director there and he said to me yeah every year my budget gets cut yeah. and now you know when i used to be able to mow the lawn once a week you know now it's once a month and that leads to this um downward cycle uh downward spiral where citizens visit their park, they're in bad shape and they say, the city can't even take care of what they have. So why should we give them even more? Right. You know, when in fact it's like, well, you've only given them you know, a fraction of what they need to take care of what they have. So how can you expect them to do more? Um, so uh, I think finding new sources of funding um, like what is proposed in the Texas Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, I think is really important. Um additionally we're working in Dallas now on a pretty exciting concept for you know going back to what we talked about earlier like how do you create park access in areas of or in cities and communities that are already developed where there isn't any new land uh empty land that could be um could be uh developed and so we're now working with the city of dallas to analyze all of the property that the city owns that is not being used uh, for for other purpose and we're going to prioritize those and figure out which one of those could be quickly and easily turned into a new park um so we've got uh you know all the data we've got a very sophisticated um gis department within trust republic land and i don't know if your listeners know what that is but basically computer assisted mapping um, that creates very sophisticated uh um, models and analysis that can help prioritize land and understand where the important pieces to meet whatever your objectives are so in this case developing parks so we're going to prioritize that list and basically come back to the city and say okay these are your top you know 10 choices and uh then what we want to do is move into a development where um, we can do a rapid, uh development process that uses um hopefully uh a reasonable amount of resources you know so these aren't going to be you know your 50 or 100 billion dollar park right we're talking about let's get a playground let's get a walking trail get some benches some signage you know really make it for the neighborhood um, yeah. and do it quickly uh, you know going back to what i said earlier there's 28 million kids in america that don't have a park or trail than a 10-minute walk of home and They do not have 10 years to wait for a new park, right? Um, They won't be kids anymore by the time it's done. We've got to find a way to do this now and do it quickly. And so I think these innovative approaches, like what we're looking at with Dallas, um, another model is to do that on schoolyards. So, uh, you know, public school campuses are a great way to expand park access. Um, Hmm. We have helped do that in Dallas with a couple other nonprofits where we've worked on about 20 campuses across the city and made those schoolyards open to the public after learning hours as park space.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Um, and that's a way to provide park access in an area where there is no other land available to build a new park. And you can do that in a couple of years. You know, the kids can actually be a part of designing the park and there's still kids at the end when it's open. I mean, how <laughs> special is that?
0: You're speaking my language right now, Robert. Uh, you got me excited about what's going on down there. And, and I have some colleagues down there in Texas. So I'm going to be passing this along so they can keep track of what you're doing. Um, But yeah, man, I really appreciate the time. And and I'm glad that we were able to talk about this because as I said, a lot of these episodes are focused on millions of acres of public land. And um, this is just a a different way of thinking about, about open space and conservation through the lens of community building. So Uh, I hope people enjoyed this. I I certainly enjoyed meeting you, and I appreciate your time. And where do you want to send people if they want to learn more about your work? Um, I hope they'll visit tpl.org slash Texas. And um, we have our
1: website there. You can learn all about the work that we're doing uh, in Dallas and Fort Worth and beyond. And, uh, you know, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the show and uh, share a little more about um, what we're doing
0: here. Absolutely. Next time I'm in Texas, I'll look you up, man. Thanks, Dylan. Look forward to it. All right. Take care, Robert. Bye-bye.